listening to you. Second Kings chapter 11 this evening. And if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And uh, they'll, you wave to them and get their attention and they'll be happy to get a Bible into your hand this evening so you can hear the word and also follow along uh, with your own eyes. In chapter 11, we'll pick things up in verse 17, just a little bit of a recap. We are looking at the southern kingdom uh, of Judah as the book of Second Kings is alternating and giving us an update of the history between the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. And in chapter 11, we're focused upon the southern kingdom of Judah, where a man by the name of Ahaziah has uh, died and uh, his mother by the name of Athaliah, in order to secure the throne, killed all of her uh, grandchildren and every blood heir so that she could take over the throne. Just a ruthless, uh, terrible, terrible woman. She uh, didn't get her hands on one of the grandchildren, a man uh, by the name of Jehoash. And Jehoash was hidden by his uh, aunt, really, and uh, in the area of the temple. Uh, she was uh, married to the high priest at the time, Jehoiada. And so for six years, this boy uh, was hidden in the area of the temple, the safest place in the whole world to hide the boy during the reign of uh, Athaliah because she introduced Baal worship into the southern kingdom of Judah. She was the first one to do that, and she wanted nothing to do with the worship of the Lord and so nothing to do with the temple, and so she was gonna, wasn't going to likely stumble upon him uh, there at all. And so uh, after six years, he was unveiled as still being alive, and made even at the young age of seven the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. The bloodline of David continued. The bloodline of the Messiah continued as a result of that. It came within one death of one child of God's word being disproved. And yet God protected that promise and in keeping the boy alive. He was made king. And then we're told in verse 17, following the death of Athaliah, uh, that Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord. This is the high priest, the uncle of the boy that is now the king. He made a covenant between the Lord, the king and the people that they should be the Lord's people and also between the king and and the people. And so this covenant was made concerning the people, the covenant that God had given to the children of Israel through Moses and which they had departed from uh, since the time of King Jehoshaphat in the south. And they made a, a commitment as a nation to follow uh, after God's law and obey God's law and to make it the standard for their nation. Also, the covenant was made between the king and the people. And the idea was that if the king would lead the nation in accordance with God's word, then the people would be faithful to support that king. That's a wonderful combination uh, for any nation. And so this was the commitment that was made 
not only to God, but between the king and the people themselves. And all the people of the land went to the temple of Baal, Baal worship being uh, introduced by this wicked queen. And what they did is the first uh, kind of uh, representation of their commitment to the law of Moses is they went to the temple of Baal and they tore it down. <laughs> they didn't like put a for sale sign in front of it, make some money off of it, and let somebody turn it into a 7-Eleven. They, they tore the thing down. And so this ruthlessness with sin and idolatry within the land, and I, I suspect that after they had been through uh, many years of the wickedness of this woman and what Baal worship introduced into the nation, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, they were thrilled to tear that down, get rid of the influence of the, the idolatry of Baal, the demons that were behind that particular religious system, break it down. They thoroughly broke it in pieces. Its altars and images just destroyed the whole thing, and they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. He had violated the law of Moses. It was a capital crime to, in, to introduce the worship of anything else other than uh, the Lord in Israel, he violated that uh, knowingly related to the law of Moses. So capital crime and the punishment was meted out upon him and the priests anointed officers over the house of the Lord. And so uh, this uh, really, really kind of a thorough burning of the bridges related to Baal. Uh, again, you know, we have... The blessing of, uh, as a nation, of, of coming from a Judeo-Christian background, our laws, our, our standards of right and wrong, good and bad, uh, uh, we're losing a lot of ground at the moment. But historically, uh, we've enjoyed great blessings uh, because that has been our standard, the Word of God, in, in that way. And so here's a case where that was the case for them. And then they got a taste for a number of years of what it means when a nation comes under the control of something else that is worship, Baal, some other thing. And boy, when they got a taste of the difference between life, when God's word is the standard, when God is the of the Bible is the God that is worship versus the worship of anything else you want to name in the world. They recognize there's no comparison between the quality of those two experiences. And so they just destroyed uh, all of it. And then in verse 19, they took the captains of hundreds, the bodyguards, the escorts, all the people of the land. And they brought the king down, little Jehoash, seven years old, from the house of the Lord, gave him a, a armed escort uh, by the way of the gate of the escorts to the king's house, took him to the palace, and then he sat on the throne of the kings. And so he is escorted and uh, put uh, into this place the youngest king, obviously seven years old, the youngest king that... Uh, that is uh, Judah ever had. And so all the people of the land rejoiced and the city was quiet. What was the reason? For they had slain Athaliah, 
and all of the wickedness that she brought with her with the sword in the king's house. And Jehoash was seven years old when he became king. Now, there's a little bit of a confusing thing that occurs related to Jehoash is sometimes in the passage he's referred to as Jehoash and sometimes he's referred to as Joash. So when you read through it, it's like, hey, would somebody make their mind up here? What's the what's his name? It's actually Joash is like a uh, shortening of Jehoash. So if somebody were to come up to me and uh, let's say you're one of these super friendly types and somebody comes up and you say, hey, what's your name? And they say, my name is Michael. Hey, Mike. You know, they automatically just contract the name, whether you like it or not. Well, that's kind of what was here. He would answer to both. He was recognized by both. But that's why you see the two uh, two names. One is just a shortened version of the others. And so the nation just rejoicing over the fact that a descendant of David and how a worshiper of, of Yahweh was again the king uh, over the land. I think of a couple of Proverbs in, in this vein. The, the city was quiet. The land was quiet as a result. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 2. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. And we all understand that. I'm not talking about today necessarily, but I'm not not talking about today necessarily either on any level. But uh, but we all understand the difference between rejoicing and groaning on the basis of whether righteousness is being exalted or wickedness is being exalted. It's a big deal. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 10. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there is jubilation. And so they were experiencing the reality of those two uh, uh, proverbs that came from Solomon. Joash was seven years old, verse 21, when he became king. Chapter 12. In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash became king, and he reigned 40 years. That's a long reign. That's a lot of years. And so he reigned those 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was uh, Zibiah of Beersheba. And Jehoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. But the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And so he went through and what he did is he reestablished the temple as the place to worship the Lord. He reestablished the Lord uh, uh, Jehovah as the God to be worshipped in Judah. Um, but the people were not necessarily unified in his commitment to the Lord. And so many people within the land continue to uh, worship. Instead of going to the temple, they worshiped on shrines up on the top of hills and this, uh, this kind of thing. And so uh, the people were... Um, they liked the, the, some of them like this get back to God thing that was happening, but they still wanted they wanted a relationship with God on their terms. And this is the same kind of thing that happens all the time, even today, where uh, so they wanted to look and say, OK, I'm glad we're worshiping the Lord again. We don't want to be going to the temple like the law of Moses says. We'll just work out our own kind of relationship with the Lord. We'll obey what we want. We'll ignore what we want. We'll just do our own thing. And there's a lot of people that do that. And so that's kind of what was going on there. But Jehoash did basically what it is that 
that he could do in uh, in making things right. We're told there in verse two that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord uh, as long as he uh, Jehoiada, the high priest, was alive, as long as he was under the influence of Jehoiada, the high priest. And you can really take the 40 year reign of uh, Joash, and it can be divided into two parts. There was the part before the death of his kind of spiritual guardian, Jehoiada, and then the part of his reign that occurred uh, after his death. And he was very, very faithful to the Lord while this high priest was a spiritual influence in his life. Once Jehoiada died, and God kept him alive, I mean, I forget now off the top of my head how long he lived. He lived like forever almost. God was just keeping him alive as an influence in the nation. But finally he did die. And what Jehoash did is he then turned his ear to other counselors and to other influences, and they then uh, influenced him into a life of idolatry and introducing all kinds of terrible things once again into the, the land of Judah in terms of pulling people away uh, from the Lord. And so he was a guy that uh, worshipped God, uh, was faithful to God as long as he was under the spiritual influence of Jehoiada. And one of the things that his life, and this is brought out more fully in Second Chronicles, but one of the things that his, that teaches us that's important for our own lives is that no matter who we are, uh, he's a leader. We look and we say, well, I'm no leader. What's the big deal? We are all leaders. I hope you're not a follower in this world as a Christian. We lead. Uh, we don't follow what's going on in this world. We follow God and we, as a result of that, we lead in this world. And so here we all of us are leaders. And he was a leader who, like any leader, has to be careful who we make our influencers in life. And as long as he was under the godly influence of Jehoiada, then everything was good. But as soon as that was off, it revealed that his relationship with God, he didn't have his own relationship with God or was too weak to withstand uh, the demands of his life. And then he gave himself to all of these other things. Have to be careful what we allow to who we allow to become our influencers in life and it's so important. I, I talk with people all of the time, and some of you are commuting, some of you are doing this and doing that, and I don't have a commute. I have a very short commute to the church here. And uh, even so, the coming and going and all, I can listen to a handful or more of Bible study tapes in just the course of the week and just building me up spiritually and sowing uh, to my spirit. And the importance of doing that. So as we talk about influencers, and the importance of that. Sometimes we get into the younger generation or we get into the kind of the technology side of things. Uh, again, I mentioned a, a friend or a person that I had met who said that they had difficulty street witnessing in Europe because uh, there's no longer people just sitting on the, the bus bench just waiting for the bus to come. They got the earbuds in, they got that thing out, and they're doing this and that and the whole thing. And, I mean, they're just, they're landing the uh, the mere space station and, and who knows what they're doing with the whole thing and all. But that's the way that it is. And so we look and we're, we're detaching relationally in terms of with people who have a face 
But it doesn't mean that we're not being influenced. And so we have to look at who's influencing us in terms of what are the buttons set on related to the presets on our radio. What have we got on our iPod? What are the sites that we go to on the Web page? What are these things that we're sowing in, in, into our spirit? Are they spiritual? Are they uh, influencing us for good? So the influence is way more than just people now that we see in the flesh in front of us. It's people who are influencing us a lot of different ways. And he, here is a man in, in terms of Jehoash. He was the kind of guy and he was the kind of leader. It's not a great characteristic, but he's not the last one to have had it. He's the kind of guy that kind of held the view of the last person that he talked to. That's just the kind of guy that he was. Now, that's a characteristic of a lot of people. And. There's nothing wrong with that having that characteristic as long as that kind of person understands that's what I'm like and I have to make doubly and triply sure to make sure that I'm careful about who I allow to influence me. And so he made a mistake uh, about his in, in who he made his influences and he, he ends up becoming a castaway as a result of it. So we ask ourselves tonight. What's the greatest influence in your life? Is it the Bible? Is it worship music? Is it Bible study? Is it Christian fellowship? Is it Christian relationships? Or is it some other piece of nonsense? You will pay a price if it is not sowing to the Spirit. The margins today in this world, this world is moving so fast in the wrong direction. And our nation is morally and spiritually, and the reason the nation is getting worse, barring some a revival that God might do, is because people are getting worse. And people are getting worse because the people have moved away from the worship of God in this culture. You can't just jettison worshiping God and bring in and worship Mammon, and worship Ashtoreth, and worship Molech, and worship all of these other gods, and say, I'm going to have continue to have as a nation the same quality of life as we had when we were worshiping the Lord. That's just not going to happen. That puts a nation under the judgment of God. And that judgment comes sooner or later. And so here is this, I forgot where I was here on, on my rant as I'm going off on it here, but... But the importance of of this, he becomes a castaway because he allowed himself to worship these other things. The other thing that we learn from him, and these are important lessons related to our lives, is that we we need to be careful that the relationship that we have with God. I don't care if I'm a brand new Christian, two days old in the Lord or a hundred years old in the Lord. We should have a relationship with God that remains uninfluenced or unimpacted in an adverse way by the death of anybody. That no matter who would live or who would die or any of this kind of thing, that I don't have a relationship with God where I've got a mediator thing between someone else. Uh, that my wife keeps me walking with God. My husband keeps me walking with God. This friend at work really keeps me in line. If it weren't for him, I don't know what he w- I would do, that kind of thing. We should never, ever have that kind of a situation going on in our life 
where our relationship with God, our spirituality is dependent on another person. No matter who does or doesn't walk with God, whether the whole world chooses not to walk with God, we should have a relationship with him that we will continue to walk with him no matter what. And Jehoash did not have that kind of relationship. And one day Jehoiada did die and he got exposed. And we don't want to get exposed. There are no grandchildren, as they say, uh, related to God, only children. We've got to have our own personal relationship with him. And Jehoash, verse 4, said to the priests early in his reign, he said, all of the money of the dedicated gifts that are brought into the house of the Lord, each man's census money, each man's assessment money, and all the money that a man possesses, and all the money that a man purposes in his heart to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priests take it themselves each from his constituency, and let them repair the damages of the temple wherever any dilapidation is found. So one of the first things he does, this is in the good half of his, his, um, his reign, is he orders that the temple, where it needs repair, that it would be repaired. It had fallen into disrepair. The th- his, uh, his grandmother and the two kings prior had uh, were not the worshipers of the Lord. The temple had been neglected. It had fallen into disrepair. And so he had a heart for God to have the temple repaired. And remember, he grew up six years, very formative years in his life, ages one through seven. He grew up in the temple. So the temple has a soft spot in his heart. And he says, this thing's in, in total disrepair. It's unacceptable. And so let's, uh, let's have it be... Uh, repaired and, and he speaks about the money that is to be where the money's to come from for the repair each man's census money uh, there in verse four each man's assessment money and then any money that people would purpose on their heart as a free will offering to give to, into unto the house uh, of of the Lord and so it was by the twenty third year of King Jehoash he's a pretty patient man that the priests had not repaired the damages of the temple. So this long delay and things aren't getting any better and this money's going to them. And so what's going on? So Jehoash called Jehoiada, the priest and the other priests, and he said to them, why have you not repaired the damages of the temple? And now, therefore, don't take any more money from your constituency, but deliver it for the repairing Uh, of the damages of the temple, and the priests agreed that they would neither receive more money from the people nor repair the damages of the temple. And so uh, he uh, comes to them, says, what's what's the hold up here on this, all of this being uh, repaired? And the plan that he had for funding the renovation of of the temple, uh, he was He was drawing on resources that God had determined were to be used for the support of the priests and for the uh, expenses related to the worship, the sacrifices, all of these things of the Lord. And so he's asking that, that the priests would do too much with too little. They've got to live on it. They've got to offer the sacrifices and they've got to 
repair the temple and they can't do all of those things. And so the thing that was the least important of all was the physical condition of the temple. And so they simply uh, let that uh, slide. And so there was uh, there's no accusation here of misappropriation of funds or anything like that. It's just that Joe uh, Jehoash's first arrangement hadn't worked. And so uh, the the priests were then relieved of their fund uh, uh, collecting responsibilities. And so he gave the the order there in verses seven and eight, told him, stop taking any money from the offerings for this purpose. And and so he was going he wanted them to hand over any of the money that they had. He was going to collect money in a different way in order for the temple to be rebuilt. And he was going to establish official kind of supervisors for that rather than using uh, priests. And so he speaks now how uh, this is all going to be funded in verse nine, essentially on the basis of free will offerings of the people. And then Jehoiada, the priest, he took a chest and he bored, uh, bored a hole in its lid and he set it beside the altar on the right side as one comes into the house of the Lord. And the priests who kept the door put there all the money brought into the house of the Lord. And so it was whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest that the king's scribe and the high priest came up and they put it in bags, countability, a couple people dealing with it. They counted the money that was found in the house of the Lord. And then they gave the money which had been appropriated for the purpose of renovating the temple into the hands of those who did the work, who had oversight of the uh, of, of the house of the Lord, and they paid it out, these supervisors did, to the carpenters and the builders who worked on the house of the Lord, and to masons and uh, stone cutters, and for buying timber and hewn stone to repair the damage of the house of the Lord, for all that was paid out to repair the temple. However, there were not made for the house of the Lord basins of silver, trimmers, sprinkling bowls, trumpets, any articles of gold or articles of silver from the money brought into the house of the Lord. So it wasn't used for furnishings or instruments in the temple, just for rebuilding the building itself. But they gave to that, uh, gave that the money to the workmen and they repaired the house of the Lord with it. And moreover, they did not require an account from the men into whose hand they delivered the money to be paid to workmen for the they dealt faithfully. Now, that's real integrity in, in a contractor, isn't it? So you just come up to them and you say, hey, listen, you do a good job. I want you to work hard. I want you, I, I want you to take and, and go as far as this money will take you. And if you need more money, I'll get you more. And then they did that. And the integrity of these uh, contractors not to look and say, wow, we've got this cushy kind of a job going on. And so let's pad the estimates or let's cause the job to take 10 years longer than it ought to take. And in order that we can retire in the course of this project or something like that, tremendous integrity here among uh, God's people and the money from the trespass offerings and the money from the sin offering was not brought into the house of the Lord that belonged to the priests. And so he tried to do a good thing, a difficult way and learned his lesson. And he learned how to punt as a king. You go to plan B and you realize, OK, that's this is the best way. And he did it now. Uh, uh, Hazael, king of Syria, went up and he fought against Gath and he took it. 
And then Hazael, having been victorious, this is uh, Syria now invading the land of Israel in the north, and then he decides, well, let's go up and, and, uh, and try and take Jerusalem as well. And Jehoash, the king of Judah, in order to buy him off from his attack, he took all the sacred things that his fathers, Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, kings of Judah, had dedicated in his own sacred things, all the gold found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and in the king's house. He sent them to Hazael, king of Syria, and then Hazael went away from Jerusalem in his threatening it militarily. And so this was he paid the ransom, bought him off and Hazael left. The incident here really illustrates, and again, this is a little more thorough in Second Chronicles, the weakness of Jehoash, of Judah under Jehoash when he went into his apostasy and wicked kind of phase of his life. And, and so here he is, he gets this threat and there's no mention of him turning to God, pleading with God, praying with God, seeking the direction from God. He doesn't have a relationship with God. He would have been a lot wiser not to have been so concerned about physically rebuilding that temple and invested his time more in a personal relationship with God so that when this event occurred, then he would have the faith to go to God, receive his instruction, know that he's in a place of favor with God. And that so he takes because he's got this whole thing backwards. He builds the temple on the outside and it ends up completely gutted on the inside. It's like we're singing this song. I'm going to worship you from the inside out. He had the whole thing backwards. He just figured he'd get all these religious things in place and it would all take care of itself. When what needs to occur is that the relationship needs to be right. The inside needs to be right. And then everything else gets taken care of. And so. Uh, he uh, he didn't have that relationship with the Lord, wasted years in, in not developing that. And then when push came to shove, uh, he just he just caved here instead of finding out what God would have done. Now, the rest of the acts of Jeho- Joash and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And his servants arose. They formed a conspiracy and they killed uh, Joash. So an assassination in the house of the Milo, which goes down uh, to Silla. For Jazakar, the son of uh, Shimeath and Jehoizabad, the son of Shomer, his servants struck him and killed him. And so he died and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. And then Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. Now, there's a little uh, 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 rest of the story that goes on here. When he headed into his disobedience part of his reign, the Lord continually sent uh, prophets to him uh, to rebuke him for not only his own sin, but for leading Judah into sin. And it's interesting that God sent a young man by the name of Zechariah to rebuke Jehoash for his sin. Zechariah was the son of Jehoiada. The man that Joash owed everything to. His, very, his own cousin, by the way. 
And when Zechariah rebuked him for his idolatry, Jehoash ordered him stoned in the area of the temple, ordered his death. That's how hard-hearted and terrible he became when, when he got under the wrong influences and, uh, and, and then, uh, you know, walked away so fully from the Lord. I mean, just unbelievable uh, ingratitude that, that he showed, really a terrible, terrible human being. And it appears that when these servants of his assassinated him, in fact, it's more than appears, we're told in Second Chronicles, that they assassinated him because of what he did to the sons. So apparently there were others that were involved as well, the sons of Jehoiada. This was a stench to them and a front to them. And so they kind of took the law into their own hands and, and they uh, killed him. And so that was the reign of, uh, of Jehoash. Mm-hmm. Chapter 13. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoiahaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel. So now we ping pong ball up to the north uh, to uh, uh, to, to Israel, and uh, our focus goes on there. He became king, Jehoiahaz did, uh, over Israel in Samaria. He reigned 17 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made all of Israel to sin. I mean, this is like a chant at this point, repeated over and over again. He did not depart from them. So I think there's like 18 kings that followed, there are 17 kings, a total of 18 kings, 17 kings followed Jeroboam and his establishing of this worship of these golden calves in Bethel and Dan, and not one of those kings ever said, this is nonsense, this is idolatry, this is ridiculous, let's get back to God and worship him the way that, that we should. And so here is this thing, and I think it's a good life lesson for us, though, where sometimes we can inherit a situation in life and we just look at it and, and it's nothing like what God wants it to be. But we look at it and say, that's the way it's always been. What difference can I make in, in this situation? I mean, it's just been like this for generations and years and, and all of this. And yet one of these people ought to have stood up and said, I don't care what it's been for years. Under my watch, it's not going to be that. And sometimes God can entrust something into our lives, some kind of a situation where we look and say, yeah, it's been like that for a long time and it's not going to make me the most popular person in the world. But as long as I'm in authority over this thing and as long as I'm going to be held responsible by God for what happens here, we're going to turn this thing around. And we need to do that in our lives. It's not just the kings of of Israel 3000 years ago. It speaks to us today in our own lives. And then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Hazel, uh, king of uh, Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haz, uh, Hazael, 
all their days. And so the, the Lord took and, uh, and allowed them because of their sin to be severely oppressed by uh, Syria. It was allowed by the Lord as a means of discipline against them. And then Jehoiahaz, here's a little bright light that occurs here. Jehoiahaz, this terrible king, he pleaded with the Lord. Hey, we're getting beaten up by the by the Syrians here. And I mean, they're just crushing us. Lord, would you whatever the prayer was, he cried out to the Lord. And and then the Lord really just out of his marvelous grace, the Lord listened to him for he saw the oppression of Israel. He saw this, the price they were paying for their sin and, and his chastisement upon them because of the king. Because the king of Syria oppressed them. And then the Lord, what he did in his grace is he gave Israel a deliverer so that they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before. And so uh, somehow the Lord raised up some kind of a, a uh, undefined deliverer and uh, who somehow did something to Syria that took the pressure off of what they were putting uh, upon Israel. And, uh, and so this uh, great uh, relief came to the land as, as there was a, a relief from all of this, uh, this oppression and, and the difficulty. And then notice in verse 6, God had done this, obviously, that they would repent, but uh, they failed to repent. They failed to respond to this grace with, with what they should have and just said, God has been so good to us. He answered our prayer. He's too much. What are we doing with these dumb calves? Couldn't somebody just like run an editorial in the Samaritan Bee? So what's these stupid calves? Can't protect us. We get, can't protect us for all these hundreds of years. And we make one prayer to the God of the Bible that we abandon and, and we get deliverance. Uh, change my way of thinking. I'll spare you the rest of the song. And so, nevertheless, they did not depart from the Sins of the house of Jeroboam, who made Israel sin, but they walked in them, and the wooden image also remained in Samaria. And so they failed to, uh, to uh, repent in response to what God had done. And maybe they were just ingrates, uh, could be. Uh, maybe they were, uh, just didn't recognize the Lord's provision as uh, their deliverer when that uh, answer to prayer came. They didn't put two plus two together and recognize that this is an answer to the prayer that we lifted up to their Lord. And maybe they thought that uh, the escape was just a coincidence rather than God's answer to their prayer. Reminds me of a couple of old stories, old jokes. Everybody ought to hear them one time, though, if you've been in church more than three years, you've heard them both. So there's this guy, he's working on a steep roof. And uh, as he's working on the steep roof, he begins to slide down it out of control. Second story, whew, he's just going to hit the rocks down below. So he cries out, help me, God. And as he's sailing down that roof, a large nail catches on his overalls and stops his descent. He said, never mind, God, a nail's got me. <laughs> and put two bus two together, the answer to prayer. It's like the joke about the guy that was notified that his house was going to be flooded. You've got to get out of that house. You're going to die. I don't have to do it. God's going to take care of me. 
So the flood starts to rise. Sheriff comes along, tells him, get out. The man says, no, God's going to save me. Floods continue to rise. He gets up on the top of the house. Boat comes along, tells him, get in the boat. We're going to say, no, 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 God is going to save me. Finally, a helicopter comes. And uh, they lower the net to rescue him. He says, no, I won't do it. God is going to save me. Well, the man drowned. He went to heaven. And uh, he gets to heaven. He says to God, why didn't you save me? And God said, well, I sent a sheriff. I sent a boat. I sent a helicopter. What more did you want me to do? So sometimes God works so supernaturally, naturally, that we don't recognize it as an answer to prayer. When the circumstances in our lives change in response to prayer, we should recognize this to be the Lord's active involvement in that situation as a result of prayer. However naturally things may be, however naturally they may appear. Let me just throw in one more joke. The trifecta of terrible jokes. So Tom and Bob, they're framing a house. And Bob notices that Tom's throwing away every second nail. So he says, what are you doing? Tom replied, well, the heads are on the wrong end. <laughs> Bob said, you idiot, save them for the other side. <laughs> That's a little better, isn't it? You never heard that because it really doesn't go with any lesson in the Bible. That's why I threw it in. Now, notice the result of, uh, of Syria's oppression, verse 7. For he, that is God, left of the army of Jehoiahaz only 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, 10,000 foot soldiers. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. I mean, the, the Syria had just trampled them, defeated them militarily in a, just a huge way. And uh, they're left. This doesn't even constitute an army. This is a police force. This is not barely enough to keep order within the land, certainly not enough to attack any other country. And so this was the condition of the northern kingdom of Israel uh, at that time. And now the rest of the acts of joy has all that he did and his might. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And so Jehoiahaz rested with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria. And then uh, Joash, his son, reigned in his place. And the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash. Oh, great. Now we got two Jehoashes reigning at the same time. One in the Judah, one in the northern kingdom of Israel. This is complicated. And uh, so Jehoash, the son of Jehoiahaz, he became king over Israel in Samaria. He reigned 16 years. And here's the encapsulation of his life. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he did not depart from all the son, sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. But he walked in them. Now, the rest of the acts of Jehoash and all that he did and his might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And so Joash rested with his fathers and then Jeroboam sat on his throne and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now, here we're given in verse 14 two stories uh, from the reign uh, of Jehoash and in verse 14. Elisha became sick with the illness of which he would die. Now, that's a very interesting statement made about uh, Elisha. He died during the reign of Jehoash. And uh, 
uh, and he died of what he got sick of. He must have been at least 80 years old at this time. Uh, probably his uh, uh, illness is uh, due simply to old age. He's been had served the Lord somewhere between 45 and 55 years publicly, more probably closer to the 55 years. Nothing bad is said about Elisha in the uh, biblical record concerning him. And I think that it's very interesting and and important to realize that here is Elisha who performed more recorded miracles in the Bible. He is second only to Jesus in the entirety of the Bible. I mean, his name is synonymous in the Bible with God's power. I mean, a man of gigantic faith and power, and yet he got sick and he died of whatever he got sick of last. I think it's important to recognize this in light of the positive confession teaching that just does not seem to ever go away, which teaches that if a Christian has enough faith, that they'll always prosper materially and uh, that they will never, ever get sick and that all sickness is caused by a lack of faith. This is to me, I mean, this is one of the there's a lot of error that's always floating around all of the time. But this is one of the cruelest doctrines that uh, anybody has ever come up with. Because what it does is when a person gets sick, and certainly when they get sick unto death, what that teaching does is it, it causes the Christian to doubt their relationship with God. It causes them to doubt whether God loves them or God is for them. And at the very time they are needing intimacy with God, a confidence in uh, the uh, power of their relationship with the Lord, the very time they need that most, this doctrine robs them of that. We're going to need our relationship with the Lord, faith in him. Uh, being confident in him, in his faithfulness, we will need that on our deathbed more than probably any other time in our life. And this doctrine robs saints of that kind of confidence uh, in, in the Lord. And Elisha teaches us that people of great faith and power and godly character get sick. And people of great faith and character and, and relationship with God, they also get sick and they die. I remember very early in my Christian life, I responded to some kind of a piece of literature where somebody said, wrote this thing and all. And so I made the phone call. Hey, I was just looking for Christian fellowship and that kind of a deal. Thought, it was, okay, let's see what's going on here and that kind of a deal. And I was talking to this lady and she got going, this whole thing. And, and, and I didn't know anything about like the positive confession movement or health or wealth or any of that kind of stuff and everything. And she got on this whole subject about you're never going to be sick as a Christian. If you do, you don't have enough faith and the whole deal. I'm listening to this whole thing. And, and I just, you know, just a naive little few months old Christian. And I asked her, I said, well, how in the world do you people die ultimately? <laughs> and she said, I mean, she didn't even miss a beat. She said, we just dismiss our spirits like Jesus did on the cross. <laughs> I feel like Lucy when she's was mixing up those grapes with that other lady with her feet. 
I'd like to know how many people that adhere to that teaching have that written on their death certificate, dismiss their spirit, couldn't find anything wrong. I bet most often it's cancer, it's heart attack, it's pneumonia, it's leukemia, something that is, has set in. The fact of the matter is most of us are going to die and go to heaven based on whatever we get sick with last. And Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection from the dead has not yet undone all of the consequences of the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, as many people believe. The full consequences of that fall will not be taken care of, including perfect health and no death and all of that, until God creates a new heaven and a new earth, as is recorded in Revelation chapter 21. It's interesting. Well, uh, so this is what he does, the condition of Elisha. So he hears about Elisha's sickness. And so Joash, the king of Israel, he came down to him to visit him in his his condition. And even though he's got a wicked heart, he began to weep over the face of Elisha. Notice what he said to him. He said, oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. What he's communicating to him is this. You are a greater asset to this nation than all of our armies. Your spiritual influence for all of these decades in this nation, you are what has kept this nation safe to the degree that it's been safe. And, and that, is, that is what makes a nation safe, is the godly character and influence of its people, not its military. Because you get that turned around, and then you've got a military in one generation that can't protect anybody. And, or, or the best people won't want to be a part of it. And so, here he recognizes and he praises him for the place of influence and the strength and the greatness of, of uh, such as it was that was brought uh, to, the, to the nation because of his spirituality. And Elisha then said to him, take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. And then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elisha put his hands then on the king's hands. So this is like he's, he's getting up out of his deathbed to be able to put his arms around him and to get it on the bow and on the arrow around the king. And then he said, open up the east window. The east window faced, to, faced towards Syria. And he, and he opened it. And then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. Now to shoot an arrow, arrow in the direction of a, another country, that was a declaration of war that you intended to initiate hostility upon that nation. So that's what's going on here. So Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And then Elisha said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for you must strike the Syrians at effect till you have destroyed them. And then he said further uh, to the king, take the arrows. And so he took them. And he said to the king, strike the ground with the arrows. And so he struck three times and then he stopped. And the man of God was angry with him. And he said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria 
only three times. And so here is um, Elisha driving home a lesson to this king. And he says, listen, strike these arrows. Okay, one, two, three. And he does it. Here's a guy on his deathbed. This is this is not Elijah who would have probably grabbed him by the robe and let him have it. This is Elisha. This is mellow Elisha, strong Elisha. This is the guy that likes people. This is the guy that kisses babies. This is the guy it takes a lot to get him to this place. On his deathbed, he's infuriated at the lack of zeal that this man exhibits related to a command of God. And in his mind, he's communicating essentially to him, when God tells you to do anything, you do it with all your heart. Because you don't know what the stakes are. You don't know why he tells you to do what he tells you to do. And if you had done with a a zeal and with a wholeheartedness what he was calling you to do and what appeared to be some mundane, mean-nothing thing, if you had done that, then, then a great, great victories, more victories would have been given to you over the Syrians. Anything God calls us to do, we should do with zeal. We should do with all of our strength. We should do it with all of our mind. One hundred percent. No place of lukewarmness, no half-heartedness in our service to the Lord or whatever God calls us to do is to be done full on. God doesn't, he just doesn't explain to us, listen, I'm telling you this because this will translate into this. And then when this does this, it will turn into this. And it has the possibility of being this. He doesn't always tell us all of that because if he's God in our lives, he doesn't have to do it. He should be confident to say, I'm going to give you a command related to your piece in the puzzle. And by virtue of the fact that I give you the command, I can be confident that you will do it with all of your heart. And thus, nothing else that I intend to follow it with will be put into jeopardy. It's so easy. Especially sometimes the longer we walk with the Lord. To just carve out this convenient little relationship with him or convenient little life of service to him. And we go through the motions and we do the thing, but any kind of talk about zeal marking our lives or wholeheartedness or expectation that God has called me to do this thing large or small and I can't wait to see what it is that's going to come out of it. It's so easy for that to disappear from our Christian lives. And here is a man who takes, strikes the ground three times. He'll only have three victories when he will need many times more than those victories to fully subdue the Syrians and, and incapacitate them as the enemy that they were. Were. And then Elisha died and they buried him. 
And the raiding bands from Moab, they invaded the land in the spring of the year. So everything, everything, it's just becoming chaos, anarchy in the land. Everybody's just invading, doing all this stuff. Nothing like what God wanted it to be. And so it was as some children of Israel, men of Israel were burying a man in the middle of a burial process that suddenly they saw a band of raiders coming. Their life is in danger. So they put the man, they couldn't finish the burial, so they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And so they lowered the man down into the tomb, and as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and he stood on his feet. Hey! That's <laughs> in the shock of that. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't that Elisha's bones were magical or anything like that. It was God communicating something to the nation. And certainly he was communicating that there was, that there was no lack of faith in Elisha behind his death. It was, a, it was a witness to how pleased God was with Elisha's life and his ministry, that his, ministry, his life continued to influence for good even after he had died. And the beautiful spiritual lesson Related to it, of course, is that we would live our lives in such a way that long after we are gone, our lives will continue to be an influence, not for physical resuscitation or or um, uh, resurrection has happened here, but that our lives would be an influence for spiritual resurrection, spirituality in the generations uh, that will follow us. And so. Uh, 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 Hazael, the king of Syria, he oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoiahaz, but the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them, and regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not yet destroy them, nor cast them from his presence. And so it's like God, he's a father, his heart's tossed. They don't give him any opportunity because of their disobedience for him to bless them the way that he wants to. Their disobedience puts them in danger all of the time. It forces him to chasten them. He's trying to be as good as he can to them to get through to them. And he keeps doing all of these kinds of things and they're not figuring it out. And the problem with it is this. They're running out of time. They're running out of time. In less than a hundred years, the northern kingdom of Israel will be taken captive and cease to exist by virtue of the Assyrians. And just because God was giving grace and pulling them out of the fire time and time and time again didn't mean that they had plenty of time to mess around before they turned around and got right with God. The clock was ticking. If you sit here tonight in your whole Christian life recently, you know you're not right with God. You know you're not walking with God. And yet you say, you can convince yourself that God keeps pulling me out of the fire. He keeps rescuing me over and over again. So it must mean he's going to do that indefinitely until the day I die. He won't necessarily do that. The day can come like with the children of Israel where a person just pushes to that place and God says, let them go into captivity. And so they do. If you are in a place tonight where you ought to repent of your sin 
and commit your life wholeheartedly to God and you refuse to do that. And I'm not scolding anyone. I'm just trying to tell the truth so I can get a good sleep uh, night's sleep tonight, knowing that I said things the best that I could say them on this given Sunday. But if you refuse to do that, you need to know the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking and big trouble is coming. The only way to escape that is to get right with God, and they refuse to do that. Now, Hazael, king of Syria, he uh, died, and then Ben-Hadad, his son, reigned in his place. And Jehoash, the son of Jehoiahaz, he recap- uh, the son of Jehoiahaz, recaptured from the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities which were taken out of the hand of Jehoiahaz, his father, by war. Three times Joash defeated him and recaptured the cities of Israel, just as Elisha said he would as he struck the ground with the arrows three times. And I'll guarantee you, at the end of that third victory of verse 25, he could wish to have another opportunity to smite that ground 25 times with those arrows. But the opportunity was gone. And so he had the victory that his faith and his zeal uh, allowed him to have. And so we'll stop there uh, tonight and we'll pick it up, Lord willing, in chapter 14 next week. Let's stand together. The worship team come forward. That'd be great. You know, it's a... Uh, I, I really love this section of the scriptures. I love the historical books. And uh, maybe one of the reasons is, is that when Karen and I got saved and walking with the Lord, that's where our pastor at the time was in his survey of the scriptures on uh, Sunday nights was in these books. So these were the first books we were kind of reading and we were kind of studying. And, you know, you read them and it's just it's just pretty dismal. I mean, you've got 18 bad kings in a row in Israel. I don't know how you make that perky. And you only got about six or seven or eight of them that were any good in the southern kingdom of Judah. But even though you look at it and you just say, man, why am I hidden in my car feeling like I just got bludgeoned? Faithful to the wounds of a friend, even if we're right with the Lord tonight. It's just good to have these warnings planted in our hearts. The Word of God, it does something in our lives, something important in our lives. And these warnings are so, so important. I hope you realize that from here to the end of the Old Testament, I could head into an hour-long rant every single Sunday night and applying these passages to our nation and the world as a whole that we live in. The applications are very, very important. The lessons are very, very important. You can't change the world. I can't change the world. All I can do is be responsible for what God has called me to be, be in my little place of service, and then him to make the most out of that, and for you as well. And these passages teach us the importance of that. And so beautiful, beautiful. um, They're not perky, but I'm not that perky, Uh, but they're just deep, 
They're substantial and they're needed in our spirits and in our relationship with the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your lessons. We take them to heart. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege in your word to not have to learn every hard lesson the hard way, but to be able to learn lessons from other people's lives and significantly lessons that of what not to do. And then to be spared, Lord, the pain of disobedience to you or wrong decisions that are there. And more importantly to us, Lord, than anything, to spare your name being shamed by living a life like that. We want people to know that we belong to you. We want people to be able to look at our lives and have hope of a different kind of life, to look at our lives and to develop a hunger for you and desire to have a relationship with you themselves. And we just acknowledge how all of this protects that in our lives. And we pray you give us that kind of a week, Lord, as we just obey your commandments, as we obey the promptings of your Holy Spirit this week, as we do it with a whole heart this week, with zeal this week, Lord. We pray that you would use all of that to draw people into relationship with you. We ask these things of you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here tonight and